Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. If you're a fan of Nationwide on RTE television, you will know that this year they celebrate 30 years on air. If you were watching last Wednesday, you will have seen them launch RTE Eye on Nature in conjunction with Mooney Goes Wild, the National Botanic Gardens at Glasnevin and the Office of Public Works. It's a fantastic competition, now in its third year, originated here on Mooney Goes Wild with the Today Show and now, delighted to say, we're with... Nationwide, our partners on TV this year. Well, in case you missed it, here's the promo. Look deep into nature, said Albert Einstein, and you will understand everything better. And where better to celebrate our natural world than in the art of nature photography? Calling all budding photographers and nature lovers alike to enter RTE Eye on Nature, Ireland's wildlife photography competition, see rte.ie slash ionnature. Get regular updates on Nationwide on RTE1 and Mooney Goes Wild on RTE Radio 1. Eye on Nature, presented by RTE with the National Botanic Gardens Dublin and the OPW. See rte.ie slash ionnature. That's the address you need if you think you have a photograph worthy of submission. You've got to be 18 years of age or older and you can only submit one Photograph, Not two, not three, just one. Please pay careful attention to all the rules and regulations. Go to the website rte.ie slash ionnature. In studio with me tonight, Aineni Launa and Niall Hatch. At his home in Malahide, Dr Richard Collins and shortly we'll be hearing from Terry Flanagan and Dr Matthew Jebb from the National Botanic Gardens in Glasnevin. Niall, you're one of our judges on the competition this year. All excited, I see. Yes, and, and for very good reason. I absolutely love this competition and I can't wait to see the entries that come in because for the last two years I have been blown away mm. by the quality of photography that we're getting from all around Ireland and showcasing our wildlife, which is something that I'm really passionate about, of course. I think that sometimes people can think that Irish nature and wildlife play second fiddle to that elsewhere in the world, but it is world class. We have some incredible scenes here. It's really beautiful. I couldn't agree more. And if you want to see some of the previous entries to the competition, just visit the Mooney Goes Wild website, RTE e.ie forward slash Mooney. Now let's get up the old newspapers here and go back to last Saturday's Irish Times. Sorry, the week before last. Aenany Launa has her own column in the paper. It's also called Eye on Nature. And I see you featured quite prominently in the paper of record last week, Aina. What's going on? Yes, indeed. And my picture was there as well. The first top half of the Speaking page. Speaking of photographs. Yeah. Speaking of photographs, black and white picture of me. So it was nice and subtle. But yeah, Michael Viney has retired. He was 90 years of age in February and he has decided to hang up well, his Well, best pen. of luck to Michael Viney. 45 years he was writing on the paper. So anyway, I was doing the Ivan Nature column because Ethna had retired two and a half years ago and I was doing the column for that. And lo and behold, because Michael's was gone and the top half of the page was paper waiting for ink, I was promoted to the top half of the page and I had the most beautiful greenfinch, a really nice one as the top picture. What was the question about greenfinches again? Remind Uh, me. Oh, the question about greenfinches was, does greenfinches in my garden and, you know, do greenfinches have diseases? And I was able to talk about the trichomonas disease that they get in their throats which causes them to swell up and so it's from dirty feeders and not washing them and it's a bacterial disease that so I was able to pontificate on that and other pictures then come in what is this and what will it do to you or what is this and tell me all about it so I have loads of space now for a couple of weeks at any rate so hopefully it will continue and I shall get to sell my wares on half a page in the Irish Times for a long time to come and good luck to Michael Viney after giving people many many years of enjoyment yes indeed fair play to the man to be killed still working until he's 90 years of age that puts it up to you when do you retire (laughs) never never. you don't look at Richard Collins he's still with us and Richard you're a fan of Michael Viney too Michael Viney made an enormous contribution to nature in Ireland and to the advancement of conservation in Ireland. Now, Aina, no better person to follow him. But over the next, I suppose in your case, it'll be four decades from now when you reach 90, I am sure that you will take up the flag and lead on to new pastures. Well, now, keep a grip there now, indeed. (laughs) 
So don't let don't let don't let you run away with yourself anyway. So we, you're only as good as your last gig as you know, Richard. Writing yourself as you do for the examiner every week is a column you have to conjure up. At least I have questions from the readers to 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 spur me on. It's all about questions, Aina, as we know only too well here on the program. Once again, congratulations to Michael Viney on a long career with the Irish Times. Now let's move on. My old mate Jim Wilson is in Cove in County Cork in Cork Harbour and Jim you have been recording frogs this week that's right Derek every year we get frogs coming to our small garden pond to breed Mm -hmm. sometimes we can have as many as 12 or 14 in a, in a pond that's about 2 metres by a metre in size. And they put on quite a show uh, after dark. They all come out. We can see they're splashing about in the reflections of the streetlights. And with it, you get this chorus of croaking. And every year I say, I'm going to record that. And nearly every year, by the time I remember to do it, they've stopped. But luckily, yeah, this week... I managed to record them. Uh, We've had them spawning as early or as late as December and right up to the end of February. And this year, just the beginning of February is when they really started to get into action, uh, getting down to business as frogs do. So what I did was I put out my recorder. I actually left it record all night. Now I was curious to see when they were most active and when they were most vocal. And it turned out they actually were croaking pretty much for all the dark period of the night. They kind of went quiet as dawn came and they were quiet at dusk as well. And if you're wondering what the background noise is in the recording, right here in the suburbs of Cove, it is in fact the constant hum of the factories and ships out and around Cork Harbour. Aha, in fact, I'm in Cove quite a bit. I was there the other day with Jim. We were recording a segment about Little Egrets for Nationwide, which will be broadcast in a few weeks' time, and you can hear that distant hum of all the industry in Cork Harbour when you're there. Jim, thank you very much indeed, and how appropriate, because Jane, one of our listeners, has been in touch with a question about frog spawn. Hi, Mooney team. My name is Jane Smith. I've just submitted a photo of a frog spawning, which I took on Friday the 10th of February in North Tipperary. It was about half three, four o'clock in the afternoon. I was walking along a drain, which I had been keeping an eye on for frog spawning as I had copped them there last year. If I'm correct, it was around this time last year. But I was so delighted and excited when I seen um, the actual frog in the middle of spawning that I actually... I. <laughs> I jumped back for my camera as quick as I could to get the picture. I was wondering, is it too early? Are we on time? And how lucky was I to actually find her spawning at that exact moment? Thanks very much indeed, Jane. As I said earlier, Richard Collins is at home in Malahide. Niall Hatch and Aina Nilana are in studio with me and... We will talk to Rob Gandola from the Herpetological Society in just a few moments. Aina. Yes, indeed. I'm looking at the picture that Jane sent in and actually it is the picture of one frog swimming around in the middle of frog spawn. I fear it is not a picture of a frog spawning because I feel a lecture in the birds and the bees coming over me. In order for a frog to be spawning, you have a male frog and a female frog and they're together and they're both producing. She's producing eggs, he's producing sperm and they come together in the water. So then that fertilisation happens in the water and then these uh, frog spawn that we see around like tapioca appears. So this frog is in the middle of after the event. The event is over. You need two frogs, one on top of the other to catch them in the act. And it's, I wouldn't think it's all that early for February in Tipperary because I remember doing a, doing a project with schools way back in the day with, with Gerald Fleming and we used to map when the frogs would spawn and in Kerry, even though we always started on the 1st of February for springtime, they always had frog spawn in Kerry before we ever even started. So the frog spawn happens from the south coming up as the way spring moves across the country and the very last counties in which the frogs were spawning were the coldest ones which are Cavan and Monaghan. So it's a lovely picture, it's great to see it happening and well done to Jane for taking it. 
have been one for Ion Nature Nile, could it not? Quite, yes. And I'd love to see a frog doing well in that competition. <laughs> I don't think our native amphibians get enough respect or love uh, in this We had country. a very good frog photograph in the final 12 last year. That's right, that's right. It's good to see it. So I, I'm a big fan of frogs and, and toads and newts. So yeah, I'd love for more of those, please. Let's say hello now to Rob. Hello, Rob. How are you? How are you? So what do you think? Is it a bit early? Absolutely not. So the great thing um, about common frogs, as we know, is that, um, you know, we're continually uh, learning new things about them. So what happens is, as Aina pointed out, is that the the frog spawning season starts kind of in the southwest of Ireland, in Kerry and Cork. And that's because, if I'm going to be technical, there's there's a a bioclimatic envelope, as they call it, that sits around the the balmy southwest of Ireland. Um, So they're heavily influenced by the Atlantic, so they tend to be slightly warmer and wetter than the rest of the country. So it's not unusual to see places like Glengariff report spawn from Christmas week or just before um, the end of the year, um, around the, kind of anywhere between the 26th and, and uh, New Year's Eve. It does start there and it, it tends to progress island-wide. Now, the thing about that is frogs, when they initiate their, their spawning migration, as it's called, is affected by local microclimates as well. So, like, even from where I'm here now in the Wicklow Mountains, my garden, the frogs started spawning um, the first week of February, whereas the National Park only really got going kind of um, yesterday and today. Um, and that would be because the bottom of my garden is, is quite a wet woodland. It's quite warm. Um, it's very sheltered, whereas the National Park, where they tend to, to breed in Glenlock National Park, would be way more exposed. So, you know, it would be slightly cooler there. Um, so there is a seven to ten day lag even here in Wicklow, and this is the the important thing about the microclimates. You know, um, so what you might see is you'll get spawn and Kerry and Cork, and then somewhere in Galway might come up next, and then it could be Tip, and then it could be somewhere in Dublin where it's slightly warmer because somebody has a pond near a busy road, so that the temperatures there are slightly higher than everywhere else. The opposite of that is then you'll have people. Up, up higher up in the mountain ranges may not see spawn until St. Patrick's Day or even later because, you know, at altitude it tends to be colder for longer um, during the year. You're more likely to get a cold snap. Um, you know, and you've got the opposite effect, you know, in a garden that may be north facing the water in your pond or, or whatever, even if it's like a, a plastic tub pond, might be colder because it's in the shade longer and the, and the frogs won't come and spawn in it until the last week of March. Rob, do you think there's any worry that she was saying, could it be too early? I mean, where are we to get a very cold snap? Isn't there forecasts of fierce cold weather coming altogether? That the, fro- the ponds would, would freeze over and that this would have a detrimental effect on frog spawn. Certainly in 2010, when we went down to minus 16, pictures of frog spawn frozen came my way. So could it be too early, as it were? Could, it, could they have jumped the gun, maybe, not knowing what the weather is going to be like in another month? It's never too early if you get me. And, and the reason why I'm saying this is because um, frogs spawn, if you look at it, like like you described it there with the tapioca kind of effect. So that jelly that, that protects the embryo, so the developing embryo is the little black dot that's in the middle of it. That's protected by the jelly. So the jelly is behaving a bit like um, insulation that you'd have in your attic or, or around your house. And it's, it's full of glucosaccharides and, and things like this, which are just complex sugar. So they behave like an antifreeze. So unless it gets really, really cold, like we had in 2010, like we had with the beast from the east and, and even just generally a late cold snap at the end of February into March, what happens is the top layer of spawn that's exposed or at the very top of the water where, where it's likely to freeze, the, the embryos there will perish. But the insulation properties of the spawn clump as a whole, and that's the way you need to look at it. It's the, the clump as, as, a, as a whole rather than the individual little developing embryos um, will be insulated by up to 10 degrees um, by this um, natural antifreeze. So they, it buffers them quite well and that protects the, the, will protect the developing embryo. So while the embryo growth will slow down, it's unlikely that unless like the, the pond they're in is extremely shallow and it freezes completely solid, the vast majority of the eggs will actually be safe and they'll continue to to grow once conditions um, become favourable again, once things start to warm up. They are brilliant little animals. They're they're very well adapted for, you know, a very kind of erratic temperate climate, which we have in Ireland where we're under the influence, you know, not only of of the Atlantic Ocean, but things that come in off off the East Coast and come over across from like the Russian steppe and stuff like that. So they are very, very well adapted to the climate we have here. And, And even like in other parts of continental Europe where you find them, like you'll find frogs in, spawning in ponds in the Alps that are surrounded by snow and ice. But because the water still has some open water that isn't totally frozen, 
they'll be in there spawning as well. To say whether it was too early, probably not. Most of the spawn will survive a late snap. I know they're talking about Beast from the East Mark Two, you know, the revenge or whatever they're gonna put the title on it. But um yeah, it's it's I wouldn't be overly concerned about it. There's a reason why they spawn en masse and each female um frog will lay approximately two thousand eggs. You know, it's it's all a numbers game and uh they they tend to be the overall winners of this numbers game. That's why there's so many of them. Rob, you mentioned there the vast number of eggs that each female will produce. And we can see that from Jane's picture very well. This frog is surrounded by a multitude of eggs. But what is the survival rate? How many of those eggs on average are likely to develop ultimately into frogs that themselves will breed and add to the population? What's the survival rate of these eggs? The survival rate for adults, so so for say one tadpole to leave the pond, develop and come back as a, as a, as a breeding adult is about 1% to 2%. So... You know, when you take into account that each each female that's that's engaged in spawning will lay about two thousand eggs, you know the the mortality rate is absolutely huge. Um, but you know you kind of got to look at it, and it's it's a numbers game, because frogs tend to breed on mass. There tends to be like hundreds of thousands of of eggs go into the water. Tens of thousands of tadpoles will survive and hatch out and be free swimming. You know, there's, so even out of, like, say, a population of 800 females that, that were in, like, a large local population, you know, eight to ten individuals making it back, um, you know, is usually enough to ensure that the, the, the population continues. And that's eight to ten individuals every three years. So, like, an adult female frog may survive in the wild for up to eight years. So, you know, as long as they, they don't get hammered by some sort of external force like a disease um, or a virus or losing the wetland or, or something catastrophic, you know, generally that's all that's required to, to ensure that, that your, your local population of frogs stays um, a healthy population of frogs. Is there a benefit to the frogs in synchronising their laying? Because I'm guessing that if you're the first frog to lay your eggs or the only frog at that time has viable eggs around, there's a much higher chance that your eggs are going to be eaten by predators. But if there's a whole load of different frogs breeding at the same time, it's more likely that at least some of your eggs will survive and you won't bear the brunt of the entire brunt of that predator's attention. Is that something that happens? Yeah, it is absolutely. So everything that the frogs do tends to be synchronized. So it it you get a couple of of early arrivals and then you get a couple of late hangers on, but um generally as a rule frogs do everything um synchronized together. So they'll um arrive out of hibernation on mass and that's what we'll be seeing at this time of year, you know. You see frogs crossing the road by by the tens or the hundreds um towards the the their spawning grounds. And then even when the, the tadpoles develop and they hatch out, they tend to shoal around together in little schools. And again, it's a safety by numbers thing, you know. So the, the more you kind of kind of stick together, right, the predators will still take a few and a few will just die naturally for whatever reason. But the vast majority of them will survive. And even then when it comes to metamorphosis itself, metamorphosis is such, so that's the, the you know, the, the development of, of a frog from a tadpole um, into into a small animal that looks like a, a, a mini frog, you know, so they rearrange all their organs, they, they grow their limbs and everything. So that's that's massively energy expensive. Um, and not all the tadpoles will, will make it through that, but the ones that do, um, they all tend to do it more or less in waves essentially is what happens so you're never at a stage where it's only one or two froglets will be hanging around the edge of the pond and ready to go into the long grass because you'll have things like not in this country but like in in the uk and continental europe there'll be grass frogs um you know other frogs like frogs are cannibals um ready to pounce and like even large beetles you know would would see a small froglet as as a meal and never mind all the birds um you know so they they tend to do everything like they'll they'll time it so they do it in waves together. Um, you see it now during the spawning season. You'll see it when the tadpoles are metamorphosing into froglets. You'll see it again in the autumn time when they're moving towards the hibernation grounds as well. So they all do it together again because like it's pure biology. You know there is safety in numbers. Um, and it's quite fascinating because they'll obviously have environmental cues that tell them it's time to go and do whatever it is, whether it's spawning or autumnal migration or time to leave the pond. You know, they're, they're being triggered by something, whether it's um, hormonal, it's day length, it's temperature and humidity. You know, um, they're fantastic little creatures because they, they're obviously able to to take cues from their environment and, and that kind of tells them um, what they need to be doing at that particular time. Robert, frogs seem to have a curious relationship with time. 
on the one hand they'll be three years plus before they reach sexual maturity that's a very long time yes they rush into breeding very early in the season with spawning in december and january and so forth what are the forces which force them to have such an extreme early breeding and, and that's something that's likely to change, Richard, but I'll go back to that in a second. So what forces this extreme behaviour is our frogs up until, well, as far as we know, they still do, they hibernate. So they stop feeding around the end of October, early November, and then they go into torpor, even if it's if it's generally proper hibernation or, or rather than a, a torpor. Um, but they don't feed during that period. And then when they get the environmental cues, so five degrees Celsius is, seems to be a very important um air temperature for frogs um, and then again when it's raining and even the moon so the lunar cycle it can be important in triggering um, a spawning migration event so they've been asleep for a couple of months they haven't had any food take so they're into their energy reserves so their fat reserves internally and then all they want to do when they wake up is they have this hormonal urge that they have to go and breed and that can take the best part of a couple of weeks it's also very energy expensive so they need to get out um, of hibernation they need to get to their spawning grounds and they need to pass on their genetic material so whether it's a male through the sperm or it's a female through laying their eggs and then all of a sudden they realise that they haven't eaten in the best part of two to three months maybe even longer so the benefits are when the spawning season is done it's still relatively early in the year but temperatures have started to increase and all their prey items so slugs snails you know mammals even in some cases are all more active so when they finish spawning it's eating time and that's what they do for the rest of the year like the vast majority of, of a frog's life is spent in terrestrial habitats so that's long grass in hedgerows you know along your woodland edges in your sand dune systems where, wherever the, the, they're what's adjacent to their to their spawning ponds are and they just spend most of the year just feeding you know the, the spawning season is actually very very short and it's a very small um, you know, time frame within the within the annual life of of a frog. So, you can see why spawning early in the year gives them far more opportunity to replenish the reserves they've lost, and then also ensure that they have sufficient energy to survive the next hibernation period. Rob, thank you very much indeed. You're very welcome. You can see that picture that Jane sent to us on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. We do encourage you to send us pictures and video images, but please do not disturb any habitat or interfere with wildlife. OK, let's go to the National Botanic Gardens in Glasnevin, where Terry Flanagan is standing by with our partner in this year's RTE Ion Nature Wildlife Photography Competition, Dr Matthew Jebb from the National Botanic Gardens and the Office of Public Works. Terry! Yes, Derek, I am indeed. I'm here with Matthew Jeb, And I can tell you one thing. It's really strange being in the gardens here at night time. We're in the herbarium. We're upstairs. We're looking out. There's some kind of faint lighting on outside in the glass houses. And it's just subtly lit up. Matthew, question I've always had. Is it a glass house or a greenhouse? Well, Terry, the interesting thing about a greenhouse is it came from the early 19th century when cheap glass was a faint green in colour. So it was like a bottle green. And the innovation of transparent clear glass was a, was a sort of modern take on that. And so when you went into a, a 19th century glass house, you did have a terrible sort of green hue and everyone felt a little bit queasy, I think. And then this invention of clear transparent glass meant... A glass house is the, the better term today. So the glass house, the palm house here is a glass house, as is the Turner curvilinear one, which is just behind it. Exactly, yes. So we've got two fantastic historic ranges yeah. here. And for that reason, architects also beat a path to our door because it is an amazing place to look at fantastic wrought iron buildings. Well, it's amazing. I'm coming here to the National Botanic Gardens, but I'm not coming to see any plants. I've come to chat to you about the Eye on Nature competition. This is the third year and it's a, it's a wonderful collaboration between RTE and the Office of Public Works that we have an exhibition that is essentially an outdoor exhibition. So when uh, Derek came up with the idea in the end of 2020, you know, it was a way to ensure that whatever happened with COVID, we could always open the exhibition. It was outdoors and people could admire it. And that has been, I think, one of its unique sort of features, this outdoor exhibit of 
nature photography in nature. So it's a great way of experiencing it. But before we come to the exhibition, we have to have a competition beforehand. Well, that's the exciting thing, yes. So we will expect thousands of entries once again this year and pruning them down to a final hundred and then the last 12 that will be put on show here is a mammoth task. It really does take a very long time and we are looking for something exciting like all nature photography. And I think every listener knows you know what excites them about a, a nature photograph and i think that as the judges you know that is what we are hunting for something different now you are a judge tell me what are you hunting for well i suppose one can take a photograph of sort of anything in nature but if that animal or plant is just sitting in a remarkable location or position it just captures your your mind for a moment and that's what we're looking for we're looking for a photograph with a difference now you mentioned plants and animals but very few people actually go out and take photographs of plants if they want a nice nature photograph they're looking for that fox standing on a hill or the squirrel as he's climbing the tree or whatever no one would think of going out taking a photograph of a plant and when i think of plant photography i tend to think of macro photography things like mosses and that you can get fantastic shots of them do you get many of those as entries Uh, sadly not and i suppose it is a challenge whilst people by and large might think of plants as simple creatures photographing them well so that you can present a photograph of a cowslip say or an oak tree that is different from others that is the challenge and perhaps you know in a way photographing birds and mammals is a nice easy way of taking nature photography i think plants are a particular challenge Mm. to make them stand out but this is an ideal time of the year to get photographs of plants because you have them all just popping up in the garden you've got the snowdrops you've got the daffodils you've got the the pansies you've got all of those plants the lighting is great And you might get a bit of snow to go with the snowdrops as well. Well, exactly. You never know what the weather's going to bring. And certainly this year, we're holding the exhibition a little later than normal. And that is going to give people the chance for that great, you know, spring blossoming of our countryside to get out there and photograph a plant after a rainstorm or something. There is no better place than on a walk to have that fresh, glistening look of raindrops hanging about on vegetation. The standard over the last couple of years has been fantastic. If I think back of of some of the winners, there was that beautiful photograph of the ladybirds was one. And then you had the one of the red squirrel, the way it stood out. It was almost alive. Yes, and the the sort of lighting in both of those was what was so fantastic. Larry Doherty, who took the little orange ladybird. I mean, that ladybird is no more than three or four millimetres in length. And the focus, just the uh, colour and appearance of that little ladybird was a fabulous thing. And it it was really the thing that sort of amazed us about it was to get that kind of shot in nature is hugely dedicated the work behind that and so yes macro photography is another great challenge but you know you don't have to go to the rainforest of the world this is what we wanted as this competition was to highlight irish wildlife could you give the listeners some idea of you know where they could go or what they could think of for a photograph because most people think oh i'm looking out there now i can't see anything i've no ideas give us a clue I suppose, you know, one of the great clues is the branch of a tree almost anywhere has got insects walking on it. It's got a sort of a great rainforest of lichens and mosses. They're all microscopic in size, but the amount you can see in close up on those branches of moss covered branches covered with raindrops with insects those are as good as the african plains in terms of wildlife to to wow the judges as regards rules and regulations tell me what are are two vital ones i suppose you do need to be over 18 to enter this competition and there is only one entry per person and there's no cost there's no cost. It's, it's a free competition and there is a wonderful trophy that will be presented here in the National Botanic Gardens when the 12 finalists are exhibited and hopefully we will have the 12 photographers here on that day. And of course we have to mention the fact that you're not allowed to interfere with nature, that you can't go up and photograph a bird in the nest. or anything. It's got to be a natural photograph. 
Yes, I mean, any sort of gardening or manufacturing of a photograph stands out a mile, and we will spot that. Anything that involves, say, a bird feeding its chicks on the nest is an absolute no-no. So enjoy nature, photograph it, but please don't interfere with it in trying to imagine what you think is going to be a real winning shot, because I'm afraid they will be excluded very early on. So you're going to have a very busy time for the next couple of weeks? Yes, I mean, the, the... Season is getting underway now, and I was interested to see a lot of media speculation the other day that is the 1st of February the beginning of spring? Well, the answer is the day after the 21st of December is the beginning of spring as far as plants are concerned. Growth has begun. All around us we see the grass is growing. We've we've already had to mow the gardens a couple of times. Uh, Daffodils are about to appear. Snowdrops have been out for a goodly while, and... Just on the lawns around, I've noticed a lot of daisies out already. So, you know, this little warm spell we're having right now is pulling a lot of the plants along in their spring journey. Well, Derek, I can't see any of this spring growth from where (laughs) I am here now because it's almost pitch dark outside. But anyway, that's Matthew Jeb. That's the Iron Nature competition that has just been launched. Back to you in studio. Thanks very much indeed, Terry. Those details can be found on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney, if you wish to take part in the RTE Ion Nature Wildlife Photography Competition 2023. Now, the 8th International Ornithological Research Conference will be held at University College Cork on the 10th and 11th of March. Professor John Quinn joins us now from the studio on campus at University College Cork to tell us all about it. Hello, John. How are you today? I'm very good, thank you, Derek. How are you? Well, as the Elton John song says, I'm still standing. Anyway, thank you, John, about the conference. Well, um, UCC has been hosting this conference once every four or five years uh, for the last 35 years. So this is the eighth such conference. And the whole idea is to bring bird researchers from around the country, be they people who work at Birdwatch Ireland or the National Parks and Wildlife Service, or indeed an industry to come and tell us about the sort of research they've been doing for the last few years. Now, looking at your programme of events, I see you've got some high-flying keynote speakers. We certainly do. We, we're very lucky to have on the Friday night, which is on the 10th of March, our very own Pat Smitty, who's recently written a book on the birds of County Cork. And on the Saturday uh, morning at 9.40, we've got David Cabot, who's a former advisor to two Taoiseach, in fact, including uh, Charlie Hoi. And he's been studying Arctic breeding barnacle geese for the last 50 years or so. So he's going to tell us about that. He's one of our most prolific ornithologists, naturalists, has written many, many books. And uh, he's going to give a fantastic talk. And then uh, later on in the day, we've got a talk from uh, Sinead Cummins, who works at the National Parks and Wildlife Service. And she's going to tell us about the research that MPWS have been doing in recent years. And towards the end of the day, we've then got perhaps the uh, highlight of the conference, uh, the world-famous Killian Malarney, who's a top bird identification expert, but he's also one of the best-known bird illustrators of books uh, globally. So we're really, really happy to hear him tell us about 50 years of bird identification. That's the title of his talk. Books and stamps, if I'm not mistaken. Didn't he do a series of stamps for on posts? Books and stamps, that's right. There's been a, a series of uh, postage stamps with his uh, paintings have been released in the past by Unpost. Um, so that's right. He's a, he's a prolific artist and he's been involved with illustrating all sorts of uh, uh, different publications. Now, it may sound like a rather innocent question, but who is this conference for? So in, initially, it is uh, targeted um, uh, at people who work in the, in the business, so academics, um, consultants, uh, people who work with NGOs. But actually, a, a lot of the ornithology done in Ireland is done by keen amateurs. And in fact, without the input of keen amateurs, and there are hundreds and hundreds around the country, uh, we would be in a, a much worse state with respect to our knowledge about uh, birds. So in answer to your question, it's targeted at professionals, but it's attended by a lot of keen amateurs as well. So um, we're looking forward to seeing them there. In fact, students come as well, uh, undergraduates, postgraduates, uh, you name it. So it's open to anybody who's interested in birds, 
Some of the talks will be a little bit technical, but most of them will be accessible to absolutely everybody. Well, I've attended in the past, and if I can follow it, pretty much anybody can. Now, you can't just turn up on the day. You must register in advance. That's right. Uh, registration is, is a very, very easy, simple process. You can find the website by just Googling Bird Conference at UCC. And it costs a very small amount to cover the cost of sandwiches, to be honest with you. But it has to be done before the 8th of March. Details on our website, rte.ie forward slash Moody. John, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Derek. Certainly looking forward to that conference. We'll all be there. So look out for us and say hello. And you could end up on Mooney Goes Wild. You never know. Anyway, the esteemed Irish Journal of Earth Sciences recently published a paper announcing one of the most important discoveries in the history of Irish paleontology. One that has been making the headlines in scientific publications around the world. To tell us more about it, we're joined now by Dr. John Murray of the School of Natural Sciences at the University of Galway. John, this is an extraordinary discovery of sea urchin fossils. Yeah, this discovery, it's its quite an extraordinary fossil discovery, which was made actually a little over 10 years ago in 2012. It was made by Dr. Nidia Alvarez Armada, and Nidia was a student in the University of Galway. She was completing her undergraduate BSc thesis in Earth and Ocean Sciences. And Nidia was out surveying the Carboniferous rocks. Those rocks would be about 350 million years old around Hookhead Peninsula, which is in, in County Wexford, in South County Wexford. One day when Nidia was out, she's very, very eagle-eyed, and she spotted an incredible collection of fossil sea urchins clustered on a limestone surface. And she immediately contacted me because I, I was supervising the project. And really that set in play a, a sort of remarkable sequence of events whereby two years later we came back to the site to rescue the, the slab of fossils because they were in very, very real danger, serious chance that they could be swept into the sea by a storm or coastal erosion. Now, can you describe exactly what they look like for the benefit of our listeners and indeed for me? So they're obviously they're really, really old, 350 million years old. So that's, you know, it's a very, very long time ago, long before the dinosaurs ever, ever walked on land. And these little urchins, in terms of size, they have little globular bodies and they would be, let's say, between a one euro and a two euro coin in size. So they're pretty small and they're made of plates and they're covered in spines. Um, they're sea urchins, and so that means they belong in a, a wider group called echinoderms. And echinoderms, that name means spiny skin. Echinoderms as a group would include sea stars or starfish, brittle stars, sea lilies, sea cucumbers, people might be familiar with, and sea urchins, or echinoids. That's their, their, their sort of technical name. And so they have these little globular bodies, and these particular urchins, they're crowded into a surface on the, on the limestone. About one metre by one metre, there was well over 200 individual little sea urchins preserved in exquisite detail. I, I mean, normally today, if, if any of your um, listeners are ever out walking along the seashore, you may come across a, a sea urchin skeleton. You may see one. It's called a test. It's a little globular bun-shaped calcite structure and generally they don't have the spines after they die the spines very very quickly fall away but these fossil urchins are preserved with all of their spines intact which is just astonishing really so Nydia to her great credit when she made that discovery in 2012 she stopped immediately and went and, and made a quadrant put it down on the ground and then began to map out all of these individual little fossil urchins in, in centimetre scale detail or even millimetre scale detail on the rock surface. Now, as you said, she found them in 2012. Why are we talking about them now? 
we're talking about them now because the discovery and subsequent recovery of the fossil urchins was just recently published by the Irish Journal of Earth Sciences, which is published by the Royal Irish Academy. And the reason we pushed to publish it, we're hoping through publicity um, that we might be able to raise awareness, raise uh, funds to have the slab containing the urchins properly restored and curated and prepared so more detailed work can be done on it. The slab itself had to be rescued. It was located just above the high water mark along the coast, that hookhead. And Nidia and myself, we, we returned to it. So she first discovered it in 2012 mm -hmm. and we'd come back very regularly just to check to see if it was okay. And in, in spring 2014, two years after that, Nidia contacted me and she was upset because actually a portion of the slab had been removed and it was it was coastal erosion so a storm mm. or something had hit it we knew at that point we had to take action so we assembled a team and the team included people from the geological survey ireland people from university of galway all geoscientists and additionally i would like to to pay tribute really to the late Dr. Matthew Parks from the National Museum of Ireland. He worked tirelessly to secure all of the necessary permissions to allow us to get in and, and recover the slab. So we got in, it was actually December 2014. So this time of year, it was, it was a cold enough day and everybody went down and volunteered the time to recover the slab. Matthew led the charge in getting all of the necessary permissions in place. And, and this is something which, which Matthew in his career did. Matthew championed the establishment and the, the, the designation of county geological sites. And he worked with the National Parks and Wildlife Service to highlight the importance of many geological sites so that they could be included in Irish and European protection schemes. So this paper, which we published, we dedicate it to Matthew and, and really it's a small reflection of his legacy in terms of conserving the geology and protecting the geology and the paleontology of, of many sites around Ireland. John, I, I realise that this discovery, it's not just of Irish interest, it's been quite the international sensation, hasn't it? Yes, it has. Hookhead is a wonderful, wonderful place to go and try and find fossils. It, it's it's. People have known about Hookhead for, for centuries now. For several centuries, people have worked and collected. But to find fossilized sea urchins like this in, in this sort of numbers is astonishing. When we sent the, the paper in for, for peer review into the Irish Journal of Earth Sciences, one of the scientific experts who, who reviewed the paper remarked, and I quote, speaking as a Paleozoic Echinoid, sea urchin worker, this, <laughs> this is one of the most exceptional and striking fossil finds in the last century. When we recovered the slab, we immediately entrusted it to the National Museum of Ireland. We knew it was important. We knew we had to save the, the, these specimens and we knew we had to immediately give it to the National Museum for, for proper protection and, and, and curation. I, I'm curious, when you look at these, these fossils, how similar are they to modern sea urchins that we still have with us today? Have those animals as a group changed significantly in the last 350 million years? They have. Niall, that's a fantastic question. Urchins that we have from Hookhead, they're small. And back then, towards the early stages of the, the evolution of sea urchins, back then, their bodies were much more flexible than they are today. Their, their tests today, their, their skeletons today are much more rigidly built. And if you imagine a sort of flexible plated globular body with spines coming out from it, they were a bit like an armor plated bagpipes. That's the only way I can describe them walking across the seafloor. And when they died, they would very rapidly deflate or collapse and the, the, the plates would, would disintegrate, they, they would come apart. And literally on the seafloor, these urchins would be washed, you know, into small parts. Very difficult to spot them. So that comes back to the central importance of this find. You know, 200 plus little sea urchins clustered together in all of their spiny glory on this limestone slab surface that was, was rescued from oblivion, really getting washed into the sea. 
So they are different. They are different to today. In the years since then, in the, in the millennia, in the millions of years which have happened since then, sea urchins have become more robust. Their skeletons have become more rigid. Their mouth parts, they have a, a really curious five-rayed grab of a mouth part. It's called an Aristotle's lantern. That's become stronger and they have a more powerful bite. And additionally, uh, a whole bunch of, of sea urchins evolved the ability to burrow. So uh, at the time of, of these particular sea urchins, 350 million years ago in the Carboniferous, they were moving about on that seafloor on the surface, on the, on, the, on the sediment water interface. But subsequently, numbers of, of uh, sea urchins evolved the ability to burrow. And that was a major innovation and that changed their bodies even further. So the heart urchin, which some people might be familiar with today, that's a classic example of a burrowing urchin. It would look quite different to one of these carboniferous urchins from Hookhead. Yes, indeed, those heart urchins, we call them sea potatoes. I was just looking at those. So so these are tiny little urchins that were very primitive. The end of the uh, Paleozoic era, well, after that we move into the next one, the, the, the um, Mesozoic and the changed. But they all died together and they must have been buried immediately by something that preserved them. So, and they all died instantly. So would there have been some kind of a pouring into the ocean of, of something from a volcano of some kind of sediment that came straight down and covered them all and they died in the sediment because they hadn't time to shed their, their, their spines, they hadn't time to do anything. They all just stood there together and died, all 200 of them. Aina, you know, that's, a, that's a fantastic question and also an amazing suggestion. Um, we, we have to further this work now and continue on and we, we do want to find out precisely why these urchins died. In terms of their congregation, they're coming together, 200 of them, and they're all, I mean, they look small. We don't know if they were baby urchins, little juvenile urchins, or if they were just miniature adult urchins. We don't know this level of detail at the moment. So this is work which, which Nydia and myself hope to pursue in, in, in the next uh, year or so. But they congregated on the seafloor, maybe there was a sort of spawning event or maybe there was something on the seafloor that attracted them there to eat. So th these are things we hope to discover vis-a-vis, -vis, uh, you know, cleaning and preparing the slab and having it professionally restored and, 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 and prepared. Um, in terms of what killed them, there's a number of ideas that we have uh, and we'd like to test out. I mean, one possibility is that oxygen levels in the seawater just dropped out. Maybe it was they were asphyxiated on the seafloor. We, we, these are things which we'd, we'd like to be able to test. Um, whether or not there was a volcanic, you know, some form of chemicals being poured into the sea. Well, we don't have evidence of, of sort of volcanism nearby. So that, that one might be a tricky one to try and test. But certainly the something was in the seawater. I think it's something to do with the chemistry of something or the oxygen levels. That led them to die. And clearly, once you can imagine a cluster of dead sea urchins and they're all sort of partially deflated, they should be getting washed away, they should be getting broken up, but it didn't happen. The spine stayed on them. So clearly the currents on the on the seafloor must have been minimal and they were they were enveloped in a, a, a mud, a mud and silt just filled in and essentially buried them relatively quickly. And even then, once you buried them, we, we can't have any marine worms or things passing through the sediment because they would disturb the spines and, and help to break up the, the, the little sea urchin um, bodies. So really minimal, minimal disturbance after they died and, and when they were buried. So you're looking at the top of them because that was the surface that Nydia was walking on. How deep is your slab? Might they be standing on the tops of other ones? Might they be sort of six layers of urchins? How deep is your slab? And how, when you were taking it out to save it, how do you know how deep to go? I mean, is it is it 10 centimetres thick? Is how, you know, how much, where do you, how, how do you know where to stop? How much to take and how much to, to uh, like you would need to have for a complete sample? Absolutely. Well, when we when we were there and we were looking at the the, um, the the surface with all of these urchins, 
it was clear to us that it, it was a relatively thin layer of of these urchins, maybe one or maybe two urchins thick. And and you can imagine if you get somebody in now to very carefully prepare and clean away the matrix, they might reveal a, a few extra fossil specimens, fossil urchin specimens on that on that slab. But it, it was quite concentrated. It, it it didn't extend down through the limestone layer. So it looked to have been, you know, a, a, a thin, concentrated event. And that, that in geology terms would represent a, a relatively instant event in time. But a good question about the thickness, because what we had to do to recover the slab was we had to clear away around the sides and we had people down who who were trained in rock cutting and who, who knew precisely how to how to, to, to remove. So we had to clean away the sides of the slab, get it prepped, and then it, we went down almost two layers of the limestone, if you can imagine, two two bed layers, and then used pry bars to, to separate and lift the slab up, just to make sure we had everything, we got everything up. So it was quite a, quite an operation. And then, you know, when we, when we finished um, the removal, we were very, very c careful to clean um, the entire area, the entire surface to leave absolutely no visible trace of the extraction. And I, I, I just would add as well, I mean, I, I, I'm, I, I go down to Wexford every year with my students, um, Earth and Ocean Science students, and we, we, we run field trips there every year. And you, it's a site, you get lovely fossils. And all the time that we're there, we never collect, you know, we never bring hammers with us. We draw things and we photograph things. When we removed the slab, we, we made sure we, we cleaned away so that there was no, no trace of the extraction. But the, the surface that we took the, the fossil urchins from, I can tell you now that from the time of removal in 2014 to today, that surface has not survived winter storms, so it's gone. So had we not have taken that action in December 2014, um, you know, that, that, that entire slab would have been lost to science. I'm just wondering, John, where can we see these fossilised remains? Or can we? The remains are currently in the National Museum of Ireland and they're in their storage facility. I don't oh, precisely, dear. yeah, I don't know where the, the, um, precisely where it is. And really what has to happen at this point is that the slab, and it's in, it's in a couple of sections which came they, when we recovered them, they came out a bit like a, you know, a very large jigsaw puzzle, shall we say. But everything will neatly fit back together and the slab then needs to be prepared and cleaned. Mark my words, there's no question. Once this has been cleaned and properly pre prepared and, and conserved, we, we will definitely push to, to have these on uh, on public display. Absolutely. It's very important that they are and very important that we're discussing it today. Thank you, John. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's pretty much all we have time for tonight. My thanks to Aina Nilauna, Richard Collins, Niall Hatch, Terry Flanagan, Dr Matthew Jeb and Jim Wilson. Our broadcast coordinator is Jarlath Holland and our researcher is John Bell O'Reilly. Don't forget RTE Ion Nature details on the Mooney Goes Wild website. RTE.ie forward slash Mooney. Until next week, bye-bye, bye-bye, goodbye. Bye -bye, goodbye. <laughs>